Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. Today, it is just Danny Crichton and I. Danny, we get to run the show today. It's fun. That's right. Natasha is headed back to the West Coast, to San Francisco. Many people with their wagons going the other direction, but it is a sign that SF is reattracting venture capital reporters. So something must be going on in the ecosystem there. San Francisco is not dead. What it is, is a boom town. And I think what people need to understand is it goes through booms and busts. Currently, it's going through a bit of a struggle. It will return. Anyways, we have an amazing show for you today. Essentially, we just had to argue over what to cut because there is so much going on, even though it is a shortened holiday week here in the States. We are going to kick off with some notes on the DD catastrophe. DD, of course, the Chinese ride-hailing company. We're going to talk a little bit about the Vision raise and kind of talk about the morality of facial recognition technology, if you will. Then we have Nextdoor going public via a SPAC. We have an acquisition that Danny covered between Dataminer and WatchKeeper. Then we have a couple of satellite SPACs. Then we have global warming fundraises, a couple of new funds. And then, of course, Danny, mm-hmm, at the end. That's a lot, but I think we can do it. I think we can power through it, yeah? Do or do not, or in this case, DD. No, try again. <laughs> We're professionals, Danny. I really like that one. Since last week, DD has been in do-do as the Chinese IPO market has disappeared instantly. I mean, you covered it in the Monday show, Alex, if I recall. Yeah, a little bit. But the, the short gist is like, as everyone remembers, DD, the Chinese ride-hailing giant, went public in the US last week. And then was hit by a cybersecurity kind of like notice from the Chinese government. I think it was last Friday. And that froze their ability to sign up new users. Then over the weekend, the company was delisted from app stores, which we talked about on Monday. And since then, we've seen the company's share price decline and repercussions from this fiasco, really, this goat rodeo kind of begin to trickle down. Well, and some of those repercussions. So a couple of companies, Keep and LinkDoc, have now pulled their IPOs. Those are Chinese-based startups that were looking to IPO onto the U.S. public markets. What's amazing to me is, you know, in April of just a couple of weeks ago, you know, we had headlines like there are a tidal wave of Chinese companies rushing into the U.S. market. And today the market, it seems to be closed yes. entirely. And, and what we've learned in the last few days is one, DD actually had information in advance. They were not supposed to go public. So the company went public despite knowing that it had been warned that it might be shut down if it were to go public. <laughs> which is an interesting footnote that was not in the S1 or yeah, F1, I guess, really in this not. particular case. And, you know, what, what I think is interesting is this is a $2 trillion market. You know, the, the Chinese IPO to the U.S. exchanges is a huge pipeline. It drives a lot of fees on Wall Street. Enormous numbers of professional services are built around that market. And it's torn asunder. Like, there's nothing left going forward. Yeah. And what's really funny is this is not the first chapter in this particular saga. We're quite deep in the book because there was the the rash of Chinese IPOs that were fraudulent back in the kind of mid-2010s. Then, of course, as we talked about on this show ad nauseum, there was the coffee meltdown that came from the company whose name I can't recall. Danny, help me out here. Coffee. Luckin Coffee. Ah, Luckin. There you go. There was the Luckin fiasco with invented revenues. And then there's this. My read is that the Chinese government, uh, as it increasingly looks to boost its control of its population and its economy, is not really that happy with companies creating VIEs or variable interest entities, I think, to kind of like fake list on the U.S. exchanges. There was always a lot of weirdness there in, in these corporate structures that allowed China domicile companies to list in the U.S. And uh, it's now kaput. I mean, it, it, this is tectonic. This is huge. It is absolutely a huge story. I, I think there's a couple of components here. One is I, I think the Chinese government wants to keep more of the growth of these tech stocks local for local populations. So, you know, as, as more money has flown overseas, I, I think the Chinese government doesn't like the fact that that money has been heading into the U.S. exchanges. 
Second is the SEC's overview of a lot of Chinese tech companies. So the SEC has been asking for more and more information, has been doing more auditing because of companies like Luckin. Yep. And um, that's been considered more and more sensitive to the Chinese government from a national security perspective. And then just third, I, I think you're seeing, you know, the, this split between the two economies. And my expectation is, I mean, I, I think this is sort of the last stage. I, I actually don't think these markets will reopen. I don't think there's as much negotiation possible here. Like they seem to be ripping off the band-aid, so to speak. And I don't expect these companies to go public going forward. What's interesting is for companies like Alibaba, which went public, you know, years ago and, and is a VIE, what happens to them? Yeah. You know, in these older structures that are no longer sort of um, politically attuned with the times. They may be allowed to persist to some degree, but we're seeing some ideas come into play. I think Weibo is going to go private, perhaps. There's there's some stuff like that going on. But the short gist is like the, the Chinese government thinks that all data for its domestic companies is is for it to use whenever it wants. And that data is also verboten from anyone else to use. And so that that's going to make it hard to list elsewhere. And essentially, this was a loophole that China domicile companies were pursuing to go public in the U.S. And it was always kind of risky. You know, loopholes don't always last. And now this one is closed. For Chinese startups, bad news, because this was a, a very attractive way to go public or companies wouldn't have been doing it. So this could impact Chinese investment in the venture capital sense. Anyways, we'll leave it there. But the, the gist is pay attention to this because it's an enormous economic decoupling that does impact startups, but also just the broader economic fabric of the world. All right, putting that aside, we're going to pivot to surveillance tech. And this is a topic we have discussed on the show because Clearview AI is a thing that we've talked about. But this time, Danny, we're talking about AnyVision. And can we start with the round and then we'll dig into the controversy? Yeah, so AnyVision raised $235 million in a Series C, co-led by SoftBank's Vision Fund 2 and Eldritch Industries. And AnyVision is focused on AI-based techniques to identify people by faces as well as crowd data. So they do stuff like temperatures within crowds. So you can think about it in the COVID context. Essentially, they want to take all the data from cameras, sensors, and all that stuff that you're installing in stores and stadiums and uh, you know event facilities and turn it into usable intelligence for security, crowd control, etc. And this $235 million Series C, which is a huge round, but does show that Division Fund 2 is smaller than Division Fund 1, because in V Fund 1, it would have added a zero to that amount of money <laughs> and just 10 x it. Uh, but critically, the company had previously raised $116 million. So Danny, this is essentially double all the capital they had raised previously in, in one big slug. And I was trying to place this company. I'm like, any vision. I know this company. Why do I know it? Well, it turns out that I recall something that had happened, which is that Microsoft had put money into the company via its M12 venture capital fund. And don't forget, not M13, not M25, M12, the Microsoft fund, which is terribly named. And they should absolutely change that. Please, God, do that. Anywho. AnyVision got into some hot water because its tech was being used by the Israeli government putatively to essentially surveil Palestinians. And Microsoft went through an audit of the company and its investment and then divested, which says a lot, I think, about, about what the company's tech does. And this brings us to the controversy, Danny, because these technology platforms that allow for, uh, I almost want to say like ambient facial recognition like uh, of lots of people over a long period of time, longitudinal, whatever you want to call it are going to be used by people that we don't like for things that we don't approve of. Like, it seems inherent to their, how can you curtail your business model to only ethical actors if you're pursuing growth, right? I, the tension there seems unsolvable to me. Well, I, I think it's a classic dual-use technology, right? There are positive use cases, there are negative use cases. You know, facial recognition is great in a lot of use cases. Um, entering a stadium super fast, boarding a plane without having to scan your boarding pass. There are a lot of conveniences. Imagine going to a grocery store and you don't even have to check out because the cart's already been calculated as you walked around the store and the face automatically identifies your payment. You just walk out. 
Please. Okay, but those all suck. Which, which, <laughs> none of those are very good. I, 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 I disagree. Play See, today, I, well, I put my phone on the little scanner thing. It scans my QR code and I get on. Four seconds. Going to the store, I don't mind checking out. It's fine. I have to bag my shit anyways. Like, like, all the positives you're describing to me are like little teeny things. And on the other side, loss of privacy. Much worse than the goods are good. The reality is, is that there are a lot of use cases for this that are positive to neutral. And I think that they're, it's coming. Like one of the big challenges in this market, whether you, do, you, know, whether you like Clearview AI, Hikvision in China, any vision which is coming out of Israel, facial recognition technology is absolutely going to be ubiquitous within the next five to 10 years. And I think you have some VCs who are like, well, they're clearly ethical problems. You want to kind of ameliorate those. But the reality is, is these companies are going to be really profitable, very rich and do super, super well. Grace, can we get a sad trombone sound effect there? Thank you. Here's my riff about this. Like, maybe you're right, Danny, but I don't want to just give up. I don't want to just sacrifice this important element of privacy. I'm going to talk about The Sopranos now. So The Sopranos is an American television show, and they do some shady crap all the time. And they get away with it because they don't have cell phones. <laughs> and there's no <laughs> tracking. And there's no security cameras. Like, There's this one scene when like this younger dude goes into like a bakery, and then he gets mad at the clerk, and so he like shoots him in the foot. And then he just tells him to not tell anybody, essentially. In the modern world, there would be security cameras, cell phones, people recording. And with facial identification tech, you're extra surveilled. Now, I'm not advocating for more mob-based violence by avoiding facial recognition, but I'm saying that the world used to be a bit more private. And we've chipped away at that. And that this particular technology, as we've seen it used in autocratic areas like China, terrifies me. Like, I, I don't, Danny, just want to politely do what you're doing and throw my hands up in the air and say it's coming because it makes money and therefore you know f it. it makes me sad you don't you don't love my completely laissez-faire capitalism well you don't leave your apartment so like you will not be surveilled i occasionally have been known to go outside at least once a month maybe and so it, it worries me and like here's the other thing like our children our friends children are gonna grow up in a world where they are always tracked if your future is correct and that, that bothers me you know the, the reality is is that governments have huge compulsion to collect information, organize it, and use it for security purposes. And I think people are right to be very concerned, but it's coming. And I, 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 one of the biggest challenges in the U.S. is it's not just governments, right? It's like every time you enter a store now, that shopping camera, which no one was paying attention to unless something happened, is now being actively monitored. There's a great quote from um, the CEO who actually comes from SoftBank. So it's a little bit of an insider deal, by the way, here. He was formerly at SoftBank. Now SoftBank's paying his company. But he said, any visions, innovations, and quote, recognition AI help transform passive cameras into proactive security systems and empowered organizations take a more holistic view to advance security threats. And that is the future, is to take this, like, you know, ambient data, ambient sensors, and, and use it in all kinds of different ways. So I protest, but like, I, I, I think there's no level of protest that's actually going to stop this. Don't you love my defeatism? Your defeatism annoys my, my inner nerd. But I, I will say, it's a good thing there's never been a historical example of governments or private companies misusing data of this thank sort. Thank God. Like it's never happened. The, thank God. So, yeah, we're fine. There's no mass surveillance. You're fine, etc. It's a big bummer. Things that are not a bummer, though, are Nextdoor's uh, SPAC offering, Danny, which you and I had a lot of fun with. Nextdoor is, is most famous, in my mind, for being the social network where people go to be awful about their neighborhood, their neighbors, and uh, any youths. <laughs> Talking about surveillance and local community monitoring, yes. This week, we had big news at a Nextdoor, which SPAC'd with the Coastal Adventures acquisition company number two. Mm -hmm. It'll generate gross proceeds $686 million, inclusive of $270 million in a pipe. 
and it values the company at about $4.3 billion. And Alex, you, you wrote a really long story about this. You were relatively bullish compared to me about this company. Well, it's interesting because the company is the child of a pivot. And I did not know that Nextdoor had grown to be so large in revenue terms. Now, I know that you are a little bit down on the company's scale in terms of dollars, but I was apparently even more skeptical. So as some historical data, in 2018, Nextdoor put together $51 million in revenue. That went up to $83 million in 2019, and then $123 million in 2020. So to me, it has reached you know IPO scale. And uh, that's impressive. It's hard to build a social network these days. If you look at the potential of this company, I mean, what, what's shocking, it was a 2010 company. And it was really meant to be a competitor to Facebook. You know, Facebook was the online virtual community network. Nextdoor was the in-person neighbor-focused local network. And the idea was that local advertising, you know, think of those old classifieds as in the newspapers, would be the base for the business model here. And I just, I feel like the opportunity just never realized itself. You know, 10 years in, it's raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's now just raised another 680 in this particular SPAC. It's only worth $4.3 billion. So a huge expense to build the company does have 27 million weekly active users. They claim one in three U.S. households is on Nextdoor. They define in their parlance a monthly <laughs> active user as someone who opens up an email, which is a particularly loose definition of engagement. You know, so I read the story and I was like, it's sort of weak sauce. I mean, I'm glad the company's going public. I'm glad it's getting an exit. But this to me doesn't bode well for SPACs in general. It's not a great story. Oh, well, if this back worries you, Danny, I got some other specs to show you that we're going to get to in a minute. They're going to blow your mind. <laughs> Here's the bullish case on Nextdoor. And, and to be clear, it doesn't really bother me one way or the other how this company goes. But if you want to make the bullish case, for example, here's the way it works out. The company is growing, expects to grow internationally and domestically, its user base, and it also expects to generate more money from those users over time. So it's ARPU, the world's best acronym or average revenue per user rose from $3.86 in Q1 of 20 to $4.99 in Q1 of 2021. So that is a reasonable increase. And if you kind of cross that with more users, you can see how the company could grow. To Danny's point, however, it had 52 million verified users at the end of Q1 20 that only rose to 60 million inclusive of international in Q1 2021. So if you think it can scale its user base, Nextdoor might be a pretty good bet. If you don't, it's not. But Danny, here's the thing. $4 billion valuation essentially double its last private number. Yeah, I mean, that, that part is great. I mean, but but look, 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 let's compare ARPU for Nextdoor against Facebook. Facebook in 2020, according to my random Google searching, was $32 of ARPU per US user, very critically. So we're talking 8x the value there. So so I think this is a classic you know, IPO bet. Do you believe that Nextdoor can go from $4 and change to $32 and compete right. with Facebook or is it going to sort of stay locked in that low number of users and it's sort of not a great success story? Yeah. In some ways, it's a nice bet. I mean, you can kind of go with it. I tend to be negative, not just because the, the numbers aren't that great, but also because Citizen, which is sort of in the same kind of local news, know what's going on, security surveillance network product is doing so well. And I, I honestly think that Citizen is sort of what Nextdoor ended up becoming, but because it became that in like, you know, pivot three or four, it never was as native as Citizen has become for that particular use case. Yeah. So on the on the ARPU point, it's a bare end bull case. I mean, you could say like, look, they've only reached $5 in ARPU compared to Facebook's 32. That's not very good. But on the other hand, the bullish case is maybe they can make that up. And here's the thing. Danny, when I think about next door users, and maybe this is slightly wrong, but here's my impression. I'm not thinking about 22-year-olds. I'm thinking about 65-year-olds. What do old people have? 
they have money. They have lots of money. They're famously rich compared to younger people. So maybe the ARPU expansion can be there. Maybe the company can pull it off. It's fun to see. So just personally, I, I love it when companies have to show me their numbers. So I think everyone should go public via SPAC if they have to, just so I can finally <laughs> stop asking them for numbers. And they're like, we can't, it's a trade secret. But we're going to flip it around and talk about Data Miner now. Now, Danny, Data Miner is a company that I'm familiar with the name of, but I forget why it dropped the E in its name and why we care about it. Well, Data Miner was a 2009 company, and, and it really, they are the quintessential Twitter platform data analyst company. So uh, back in the, the 2010 riots in Egypt and across the Middle East as part of the Arab Spring, Data Miner was the group that was trying to find events and, and news in real time using Twitter and a variety of other data sources. They've now come a long way from that. They argue they have more than 100,000 data sources, but they're still focused on this sort of event-driven intelligence. So you know, reports of gunshots at a bank branch. They're able to do that in some millisecond time. And for a lot of companies, that can be really, really important. Yes. Data Miner announced its first acquisition in its corporate history, 12 years, a UK-based company called Watchkeeper. And Watchkeeper was focused on, it's a two, three-year-old company. They were focused on geo-visualization of event kind of data. So particularly around weather, um, it was a little bit of a climate change story going on here, but it's like if a hurricane hits Florida, let's say your Citibank, which branches are going to get hit, which ones might flood, how do I need to deploy my resources, do I need to put security in certain places in order to protect some of my resources, and so the the hope of this acquisition is to combine data miner and watchkeepers, you know, data plus geoviz together into one beautiful platform. Yeah. And so to me, when I was reading through this prepping for the show, I was like, oh, this is a match made in heaven because data miners yanking all the data and they want to show where it's going to impact things. Oh, look, watchkeeper can do that. I mean, like, come on, it makes a lot of sense. In product terms, they're going to go ahead and put watchkeeper into what's called data miner pulse uh, later this year. And data miner CEO said this was not an aqua hire. This was a serious acquisition please care about it. So it wasn't $48 and a couple of jobs. It was presumably an actual dollar amount. But what I was excited about, Danny, is that after you know 12 years in business, we may actually see data miner go public soon. I think they're getting closer. I mean, so in March 2021 this year, raised $475 million at a $4.1 billion valuation. And um, uh, certainly the company is doing, I, I think, very, very well. You know, Concerns around, say, the supply chain issues with the Suez Canal situation. We've seen a lot of these big news stories that you know, ripshot across the entire world. And for a lot of folks in, in supply chains or in physical security or in, in risk management, they just need this sort of intelligence on a day-to-day -day basis. So very interesting company. Last point here, I would point out the founder of Watchkeeper, Hugh Farquhar, was at Citigroup and had built a platform on top of data miner to get data miners data into the Citigroup processes, spun out to go do that for other companies. And the companies were talking about a partnership which led to an acquisition, which I think yeah. is actually a very common startup trajectory. According to Ted Bailey, the CEO of Dataminer, they were having intense conversations for six to 12 months and eventually flipped that from partnership to buy. So, I, you know, common story. I think it's super interesting, but obviously climate change becoming more and more important to a bunch of different companies. And, and that's why this week we've had not just one, but two satellite SPACs all in a row, all about imaging the planet. One, I think, way ahead of the other. So we'll start with that one. Planet Labs, Alex, uh, what do you think about them? Okay, so I'm a little bit torn about all of these companies because on one hand, I love space because I'm a science fiction nerd. On the other hand, I, I was less impressed with some of the numbers that came out. So if you look at Planet Lab's SPAC investor deck, which I have open for myself right now, the company's revenue growth has been very consistent, I think is the proper diss here. In calendar year 16, 43 million, 66 million the next year, 73 million, 96, and this year they expect 113. This is from a company with 200 satellites, right? And, and some debt. And I expected more scale. 
from that satellite base, frankly. Of course, going public via SPAC will give the company lots of money. It can get its kind of balance books in order and maybe even deploy some more satellites. But I, I just, I, I thought it was going to be larger, I guess was my, my, my read about this. Your first impressions. Well, first of all, I mean, this is one of the first companies, uh, a B Corp, so a public benefit corporation to go public via SPAC. So that's that's quite exciting. Yes. And what was interesting to me financially was, is that the company's actually using a lot of the, the money it raised in the SPAC to pay down debt, which you don't yep. see startups talking a lot about, but they're going to use 111 million of the total just to write off debt, which obviously comes from, you know, deploying satellites into space. I'm sure that, was, that wasn't free. You don't get that uh, with your happy meal at McDonald's. But nonetheless, I was with you. I mean, I, I think there, there's some good revenue opportunities. They're not expected to go profitable until 2025, which is one of those like beautiful soft bank arrows, which is sort of like total hypothetical going into the future. Again, uh, similar to the next door story, I think you just have to believe, yes, right, that like because of climate change, because of the number of challenges geographically to the Earth's surface, that more and more companies are going to need to know, you know, how storm damage is working, whether wildfires are knocking out plants. You know, you're in mining, you're in timber, you're in natural resources, you're in banking, you're in retail. You have these physical assets that are directly affected by events with climate. And theoretically, Planet Labs can help you with that. Right. So essentially, the gist here is satellite imaging going to be a big market. And that's also the bet behind Satellogic, which is a name that I'm not going to lie, Danny. I, I covered this and I couldn't spell it. But it's one L or two. It's two L's. And also I can't spell in general. And so when you take two, <laughs> dirty secret. Anyways, Satellogic, another similar idea, taking photos of the planet, selling them to people. As a data point, if you remember back to our YC podcast from the last batch, there was a company called Albedo that is also doing this. And so I emailed Topher, the CEO, and I was like, uh, check out this here SPAC. What do you think? And he was like, well, one, love to see my competitors' financials. I was like, yeah. And then he was like, well, we're doing something very different. Because what Albedo wants to do is have much higher resolution. So I think about like the newer startups that are doing this as kind of the next gen of these companies, because these have a, a larger pixel size, effectively. So they're lower res, but they, they're up in the air. Anyways, Satellogic, going public via SPAC, valued at $850 million. It's going to have a pipe worth 100 million. So again, raising a lot of capital for its business. The difference, though, here is that it has no revenues last year, none, and it expects uh, a grand total of seven million in revenues this year, and then that goes up to 787 million by 2025. And Danny, I'll have you know that it expects to have nearly a half billion in adjusted EBITDA by 2025. It's magic. Seriously, it's SPAC magic. These SPAC decks, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> the SoftBank consultants are really getting around and they're doing a great job. Look, I, I think one of the magics here is, do you believe that higher resolution satellites is a competitive advantage? I do. The question is, why doesn't Planet Labs deploy higher resolution satellites? There is a, like a weird network effect to satellites. Like obviously having a bigger network is a network effect compared to people with a smaller network. Yep. But anyone can kind of launch satellites today. That's sort of the, been the magic of space the last five to six years. It's actually not that hard compared to 20, 30 years ago. Just put your satellites into orbit. Yep. And so I actually think, you know, this is a much weaker company. It's definitely followed way behind. And, and what's crazy is it's founded the same year. Planet Labs and, and Satellogic, at least according to our notes, were both founded in 2010. So both have had 10 yeah. years. One has serious revenue. The other has zero, except, you know, a projection for really great revenue. One has 200 satellites. One has 13. 17. I just don't know what went wrong here. Se I'm sorry, 17. Well, Please, you know, Danny, come way on. off Let's on that one. Get it right. But they're going to have, you know, 300 in the next year or two. So I, I just don't know what's going on here. But to yeah. me, one seems clearly the winner and the other seems the loser. I'm going to dweeb out for one second. And I, and I know we have to move on to some funding rounds and our producer is going to gently tell us to shut up. But like, 
Here's the thing. You want to have satellites lower down in orbit to take higher res pictures. You want low Earth orbit satellites, essentially. And the problem with that is the drag coefficient goes up. And so you burn more fuel to stay aloft because you have to kind of burn occasionally as you fall into the gravity well and your satellite burns up and you're dumb. And so it, it's harder. And so I think what we're talking about is like higher Earth orbit satellites and technology stack based on that versus these kind of newer space companies that are going to work on in orbit refueling and so forth. And so to me, fascinating to see these numbers, slightly disappointing, but let's move on. And we'll talk about this as we learn more from other companies like Albedo and of course, Satellogic and Planet Labs. But Danny, let's talk about some climate change. Yes. Yeah, so a couple of big rounds this week. Fabric Nano raised 12 and a half million from Atomico. They're focused on what they call cell-free biomanufacturing. So the most quintessential example of that is high fructose corn syrup, which uses cell-free uses an enzyme to produce the final product, uh, which is the sugar in a lot of you know drinks and, and things you consume. Fabric Nano is focused on plastics. And so they're hoping to yep. use essentially an enzyme process in order to create plastics in a much more green-friendly way. Today, plastics are made from oil. Every step of the supply chain is particularly nasty from a climate change perspective. <laughs> lots of emissions, <laughs> lots of pollution. And the hope here is, you know, obviously plastics make it possible, as they say in the United States, and uh, a, a new greener form of manufacturing might improve that market quite a bit. Yeah, but so really briefly on this one, but like, isn't this kind of half-assed? Like, great, we found a better way to make plastics, which are bad. It's like I found <laughs> a less guilty way of murdering my spouse. Like, it's just not good. I kept reading this and I was like getting to the point when it's like, and then these break down and they're more biodegradable. Or they're like, you know, uh, man, there's a lot of plastic in the world. And this has been a problem so long that like, comedians have been making jokes about how like maybe the only point of if humans was to actually generate plastic and plastic isn't debris it's, it's the end product of the human civilization <laughs> look we're, we're, we're killing our planet and i'm guilty of this as anyone else because i use plastics all the time Everyone because i'm a modern plastic. consumer but like my gosh i i, I just I, I was hoping for one more trick in this particular book anyways on the same topic denny we have Cloverly, which raised a $2.1 million seed round. That's right. So Cloverly is focused on uh, monitoring and theoretically improving the emissions for different companies. So it's an API layer that you can use to basically set up your sensors and, and, and coagulate them all into one dashboard around emissions and then offset them using different products. So raised $2.1 million, led by TechSquare Ventures with participation from SoftBank's Opportunity Fund and others. It's a sustainability as a service company launched on Earth Day 2019. Yep. And, and the founder, Oni, who actually stepped off as CEO of the company as becoming just a board member, said that, you know, it will take a diverse group of people and teams to find solutions to create a more sustainable future. So very interesting company. Obviously, it requires companies who actually care about their emissions and actually purchase this and install it, which is always a little bit of a concern because I think one of the challenges with most emissions is that no one actually wants to monitor them. No one wants to have that data lying around, whether for discovery in a legal case or whatever the case right, may be. Say. So a little skeptical. But one last story in the climate change piece before we move on. Our parent company, at least for a few more weeks before they, they leave us alone, Verizon introduced what they're calling Thor, the Tactical Humanitarian Operations Response Vehicle. Now, if you're thinking about the StarCraft reference and what a Thor is in that game... This is not it, Danny. It doesn't shoot rockets. It doesn't have amazing arm cannons. What does it do? Well, it's a modified Ford F-650, which I have been told is a little bit larger than my Schwinn bike. The idea is it's, it's designed to provide frontline workers with wireless transmitters. So you can deploy the truck. It's meant to be indestructible. It can hold a couple folks in the cab. And it deploys 5G, 5G ultra-wideband, satellite uplinks, all kinds of mobile technologies. The idea being that if you're on the California wildfire front, and the cell towers get burnt to a crisp, which is not something that is rare these days. The Thor could be deployed, driven to where it needs to go, and people can have uplinks. And, and that's one of the big things, as you know, we've, we've had this disaster discussion for a while. Yep. Special episode of Equity on Disasters. Connectivity at the edge 
in the maelstrom, so to speak, is vitally important for all these companies. And so Verizon, super interesting new development from them. Just one tiny thing more about this. One, yay, glad they're doing this. How much do they cost? And can I park one outside my house? Because <laughs> what I would love to have is better cell service. And I would love to have 5G. And so to me, like these are cool. Can my city like get one and just drive it around and boost everyone's 5G? It's super cool. And I hope we see a lot more of this kind of rolling out. Let's pivot to a couple of quick notes on some venture capital funds that have put together new amounts of money. Danny Acrylic has put together a $55 million fund. And the trick here is that it's actually a solo GP. That's right. A solo GP, Ash Egan, who was formerly an accomplice and was an investor at Consensus Ventures and Converge, has been investing in the the blockchain space for, I, I think, five, six years now. So basically from the inception of when VC started getting interested in this, he raised $55 million from Sandana and Accolade Partners, so two major fund of funds who are focused, uh, particularly Accolade, on building out blockchain-focused funds, along with Accomplice, DCG, or formerly Digital Currency Group, Chris Dixon, Mark Andreessen, Jim Pilata. The focus is on what he calls inception capital. So in the crypto space, obviously a lot of vagaries in the market, you know, stock tickers going up and down, people really focused. Ash is really trying to emphasize the companies that are going to do well in bull and bear markets. So no matter what happens, you know, the companies are going to create value. And, you know, the name Acrylic comes from, he, he is a painter on the side, but Acrylic is drawn or, or sketched in layers. And so the idea is that each layer adds to the previous layers, it combines, it fuses together very poetic, far more poetic than a lot of the VC names that we see out there these days. Now that I know you can name VC funds after painting, I'm going to name my future venture capital fund, Alex Sucks at Painting. And that's going to be a real killer because I'm terrible. And then the other kind of uh, even, I would say, bigger news item for the venture capital world was uh, Renegade Partners, which has kind of rolled out a $100 million vehicle. And Denny, this is a, a, a firm that we heard about raising capital back in like 2019. So it's kind of nice to see this, this come out. Whom is behind it? And why does it matter? Right. So Renata Quintini and Roseanne Winchek. Quintini was formerly at Felicis and uh, Lux Capital. Winchek was formerly at Canaan and IVP. So long histories of really established firms. The Wall Street Journal reported that they were raising 300 million folks on Series B back in September 2019. They actually did a first close the weekend before the COVID lockdowns in the Bay Oof. Area. And then they officially sort of announced the fund right now. And what they're focused on is, is what they call the super critical stage. Alex, what is that? So... We were trying to figure this out. And to her credit, Winchuk said, it's kind of a purposely vague phrase. And she says that's because stage definitions don't mean much anymore. And to be clear, absolutely fair. Don't disagree with that. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote, Danny. I think it's probably the best way to approach this. So she says, I started my career as a chemist way back when, and supercritical fluid is the state of matter that is neither liquid nor gas, but both at the same time. And we feel like companies can be the same. There's a product to market. There is some data. There's early customer love and a generally a sizable team, but they're not big growth companies yet. So they're not going to go out and raise a $100 million growth round, but they're certainly not seed stage. And this to me is trying to find that balance point between startups that still have a lot of potential for rapid value appreciation, but are de-risked to some degree because there's early data of product market traction. My question is, Danny, isn't this where everyone wants to invest? Like, isn't this the best place to put money to work because it's a combination of like momentum and less risk? I think that's exactly right. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see, obviously, very strong reputation. So I think they'll attract a, a, a sizable number of entrepreneurs. But nonetheless, you know, there was like no constraints on the fund. They're like A through C. Yep. Any market, kind of any backgrounds of founders. It's great to see, though, two successful women coming out of established firms building out. We've seen a couple of these patterns. Mary Meeker at Bond, obviously, coming out of Kleiner. Dana Grayson of Construct Capital, Beth Seidenberg of West Lake Village Biopartners. So 
it's just great to see a cohort of folks building their careers at established places, spinning out and building their own shops, putting out the, the shingle in front of the window, and growing from there. So $100 million for Renegade. And that leads us to another $100 million fund, Mm-hmm. because it's the last mm-hmm. thing of the show. Alex, this has to be the most ridiculous story we've read in a little bit of time. And this is an industry filled with ridiculous stories. I mean, we did just talk about a satellite company with no revenue going public, but um, <laughs> mm-hmm to that. And also I say mm-hmm to mm-hmm, raising $100 million. Now, go back in time to early COVID. We covered mm-hmm which was a product put together by Phil Leiben, a former equity guest, actually, and best known for his time at Evernote. And what mm-hmm, and that's actually what it's called. I'm sorry, I'm not being annoying. That's it's, two it's, M's, an H and two M's, to be right. clear. It's, it's not a It's not three M's. It's not mm-hmm. It's also not sarcastic. Mm-hmm. It's also not mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. Regardless, yeah. mm-hmm put together a product that was a way to make your video conferencing better, a way to put graphs behind you, minimize your own size, show better backgrounds. Essentially, it was all the tools that you kind of hoped that Zoom had, but Zoom didn't build because Zoom was busy building like rock solid video infra. And to be clear, it worked, as we all know. They put together a $40 million round off of that, which we all thought was a little strange. And then they put together this, a new $100 million nine-figure investment to build out more of a mm-hmm. Danny, what could they use $100 million for? The one-year-old company. It's a vision fund investment, which is always a great sign for whatever you want to take vision. from that brand name. But, uh, you know, I, I've seen some of the videos. I have not used the product myself, but I have watched some of the videos. I think there's something there. I actually, despite its ridiculous name, which, by the way, might actually be one of the reasons it's successful. I actually think it's becoming a meme in and of itself, which is always a good sign mm-hmm. to be in. You know, look, people want to be newscasters. You're presenting, you're a salesperson, you're trying to present your product. Today, it's either like PowerPoint or my face. And and what it's been able to do is to combine those two together so your face can be there, you can walk around. It's almost like you're a weatherman or weatherwoman. I actually think that with the right templates, a nice set of integrations, there's a lot of potential there. And then, of course, you mentioned Zoom. They're actually trying to build out their own infrastructure. So they're going to build out their own mobile app and video infrastructure. So they want to be their own one-stop shop. Yep. I think that's pretty compelling. And I could absolutely see it either doing its own kind of standalone business. I actually think this is like the most obvious acquisition ever to either Zoom, Google, Microsoft. I mean, you know, there's huge buyers here. This might be one of those quick turnaround, quick hit wins that we don't often see too often in this world. (laughs) No, and and this wouldn't run into any antitrust issues. You could just buy it if you're a big company. I get the sales use case that you outlined. That makes good sense to me. I can see that being a market. We'll see. So this amount of money to me, Denny, says that there's something here that I am missing, and that makes me curious. And so I'm, I'm willing to give it benefit of the doubt for now. Look, when the antitrust folks show up, they will use mm-hmm, mm-hmm to present their deck on why they shouldn't be allowed to, to buy the company. But mm-hmm, that's the end of our show. Yeah, it is. We're going we're gonna to leave it there. We are back next week with a regular cycle of shows. Natasha will be back. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. <laughs>